Mayfair 515, Albuquerque Center, Roger, climb and maintain 13,000. Riding down the trail to Albuquerque, saddlebags all filled with beans and Welcome to the City on the Edge podcast with your hosts, Nora Hickey, Mike Smith, and Ty Bannerman. Much like Los Angeles to me. Here we are at City on the Edge, and this is a yeah. a momentous occasion because Yo. not only is Mike back on the show, it's been a little a, a little, little bit, bit, yeah, it's been a minute, yeah. But you're in my house what? recording, and nobody's wearing masks. Right, and you didn't care that we have COVID. You're yeah, like, come exactly. on over. <laughs> like you guys haven't been vaccinated at all. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm you're coughing. coughing, and there's some kind of boils on right. your skin. My eyes are bleeding. I don't know what that's about. That could be unrelated. But uh, but I appreciate you just not caring. Exactly. Yeah. Like, that's what friendship is. It's thanks. not caring when one of you has an infectious disease. <laughs> so welcome. Jokes. Back to my house, Mike. And Morrow's here too. <laughs> although Morrow's not going to say anything she said. Oh. She said, isn't that ironic? You said you're not going to say anything? <laughs> Uh, and uh, today, we're going to be talking about the heroic side of El Fago Baca. Last episode, I kind of talked about more of the scoundrelly side of El Fago Baca. So it's only fair that we get into the more oh, heroic I didn't hear that one. Stuff. Is that up? Yeah. Oh, really? Um, that's up. Uh, yeah. He, he just, he, he didn't let the law stop him from doing what was right. Hmm. For the most part. And then, and then also there was some stuff where he was smuggling people to Pancho Villa and, mm. and so forth. So I don't. It's kind of cool. It, it's murky yeah. at that point. So I don't. I don't know. You know, I'd like to say, well, he always did what was right, right depending on, and it didn't matter what the law said. But I, I think he was a little scoundrelly sometimes. Mm. But today we're not talking about that. Well, Pancho Villa drove some of my ancestors out of Mexico, and reading about it, I kind of think they deserved it. <laughs> yes. They went down there and tried to start a Mormon colony in this one area, and he's like, get out of here. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'd drive you out. Well, yeah, I mean, oh, man, I think if you have a yeah. If You're a crazy family. If the Mormons are camping out in your yard, you got to do something. Mm. Um, but I want to, we, we uh, yeah. on the Patreon, I, I put up one of your um, pizza delivery oh, oh, pieces thanks i heard the I little ca- clip on that one i episode. called it was the uh, i said it was the uh the mike smith ride along simulator <laughs> so it would be like what you what what it would be like to deliver pizzas with mike smith but i want to talk to you a little bit about that yeah. just at the beginning what, what's going on with that job well i quit it okay. um my it was like costing me more in car repairs than to do that job it's like yeah. i mean working those terrible sub-minimum wage jobs. Totally. Corporations should just be ashamed, man. I mean, like, it could have been a really pleasant job. Like, if we had a union and, like, uh-huh. basic rights and things like that, that'd be a fun job. I like driving around an area learning. I learned so much about graffiti and history and just, like, the yeah. city. I, like, know the Southeast Heights in a way that I never knew them before. And they're a really interesting, like, borderland. I mean, yeah. the... Uh, the Southeast Sticks, this whole gang territory between Avenida, Sticks. yeah, That's what they call with, it? A, with an X. Huh. It's uh, but not, but not the whole area. It's um, between I twenty five and Broadway and Avenida Cesar Chavez and Gibson. It's just this narrow little rectangle. Interesting. But gangs like JMV, the uh, Juaritos Maravillas, the Suarez uh, gang, really have a lot of sway over there, Ooh. and they feud with groups like Los Padillas that are more homegrown to here, right. and. Um, 
I just learned all this interesting stuff. The International District is part of it, but it's not all of it. The Southeast Heights, quote unquote, the more gentrified areas, yeah. those are part of it. But it's like there's a lot of different areas. And uh, I went to this one house. It was like 3200 Ridgecrest or something that I had seen some historic photos of. And I was snapping photos of it on the job one day. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> Eat it, Domino's. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the owner came out and was like, would you like a historical book about this? No one's ever interested in this. Really? And he gave me this amazing book about the Southeast Heights that cool. is like super well researched by all the neighborhood oh, associations dude. there. This is clearly an episode right there. Oh, absolutely. And we, we should have the author on because it's really yeah, we well should. researched. It even has like guides to like all the trees growing in the area and like tons of stuff. Mm. It tells you about all the street names, all the people. I mean, some really interesting uh, histories that I never knew about, like DKB Sellers, the dude that developed Knob Hill and, yeah. as a whites only place. Right. And right. I mean, do you know he was a mayor of Albuquerque at one point? Actually, I did not uh, know that. How did I, I not know that? I, I, mean, I was like, how did I not know that? Wow. And then there, I learned about all these areas, like um, between Carlisle and Morningside, right along Central, sometimes in a strip as narrow as 10 to 14 feet, there's an area called Moncado. And it was one of the first areas east of downtown that was developed. M-A-N-K-A-T-O, which is Sioux for Blue Earth. What? But it's named after a town in Kansas um, where the investors that first opened that area lived. And they had, like, you know, some of the first stands that were along Central Avenue east of Newtown um, in, starting in 1893. Around there. I learned all Dude, this, this is stuff. all news to me. All There's news so, to me. Dude, i got to loan you this book because it just, like, blew my mind with and how we're much not we like, don't know. And we're not, like dilettantes no, here. No, we've had a like, podcast we, about Albuquerque we, history for seven years. Live now, and I breathe think. this stuff. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's exactly like, yeah. it's why I find this city so fascinating. Totally. There's always more to learn. There's always totally. another side of things yes. to look at it from. I think we need to do episodes that focus on every like area of town. We do deep yes. dives into North Valley, South Valley, Northeast Heights, Southeast Heights, uh, anything. I mean, like name an area of town that, you know, and let's just yeah. like really... Because there are so many layers, and they're all connected to, to uh, larger things. Well, who we are as a city. Absolutely. All right. Well, shall we uh, move um, on to the subject of the uh, show today? Yes. All right. So like I said, last time I talked to, uh, to Cody Polston. Nice. A ghost hunter and, and author of uh, Wicked Albuquerque, hmm. which is all about, um, you know, gunfighters and brothels and right. whatnot in, uh, in the historic Albuquerque. Does he do those ghost tours, too? He started huh. one of the ghost tour companies huh. in, in uh, Old Town. Huh. There, there seems to be some story there, and so we're going to have him back on a little closer to October when we're feeling, hmm. you know, ready to talk about such things. That's but, cool. uh, yeah, he had a lot to say. We talked, to, we talked a little bit about ghost hunting. Um, very interesting. But... Interesting. With him, we uh, we touched on some of the less savory aspects of a certain famous New Mexican. Right. I'm going to ask you not to say his name because uh, because I've got a big reveal Ooh. coming up. Um, and so today, it's only fair that we give a full accounting of his shining, heroic, uh, finest moment, nearly mythical right. moment. So settle in as right. I tell the story of one of the West's greatest heroes. And his name? El Pego Paca, in the land of big men, when this great west was wild. El Pego was small, and his nature was mild. And the legend was that, like El Gato the cat, nine lives had El Pego, El Gato. He dared to stand up to the toughest of men. 
He faced all their six guns again and again. All the people in town and the folks all around sing the praise of El Fago, El Gato. El Fago was wise and El Fago was strong. El Fago, El Gato, who made right from wrong. And the legend was that, like El Gato the cat, nine lives had El Fago Baca. Okay, well that's the episode. So yeah. uh, thank you for uh, for listening. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's from the uh, the Disneyland mini series, The Nine Lives of El Fago Baca. Um, it started out as Disneyland, and then it turned into the Wonderful World of Disney, which is probably hmm. what, when you and I would watch the the Disney remember, show. Yeah. That's what it was Jonathan called. The Winters. Did he host it? I can't remember. He was just on the left. I don't know. Oh, I don't okay. know who hosted it. Okay. I, barely remember it yeah. but uh so the uh, the nine lives of el fago baca weirdly ran for 10 episodes you'd think it would run for nine episodes mm. in 1958 and then it was later turned into a film mm. and playing the noted hispanic hero el fago baca was uh, italian-american actor robert loge mm. um the miniseries is super cheesy and it's full of all your usual disney western cliches mm. Frankly, I'm not sure that anybody ever called him El Fago El Gato. Hmm. Yeah, I never heard that before either. Before I watched that today. But it is kind of cool to see a Hispanic hero defending his community against an incursion of white racists hmm. portrayed on TV in the 1950s. Hmm. Uh, and the song is super catchy, right? Yeah. And you guys watched it mm-hmm. recently. What did you think of the uh, the story, the the show? Well, Twitter would say that ACAB includes El Fago Baca. <laughs> um, but... Uh, um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting tale of New Mexico versus Texas, you know, yeah. also, and, uh, you know, of that early animosity, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, I mean that it is the stuff of an action movie that one person holds off like every bandit in a state totally. basically like from a tiny little building, you know, I mean, yeah. How did he even do that? 4,000 bullets fired into That's it? That's what they say. Um, I mean, watching that miniseries and then doing the research, right. I was just like, how has this not like been some huge right. movie that's right. come out in the last yeah. 20 years? Maybe it will be. As far as I know, this is the only uh, film hmm. version of, of the story. Hmm. The uh, El Fago Baca Nine Lives Disneyland version that got turned into a movie. And then that's it. Huh. And it, it's like, this guy was way cooler than Wyatt Earp, at least in his legend, right, you know? Right, And I've seen some of that before. I think that was around, too, like when we were growing up watching, you know, whatever Disney yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I, I know I saw yeah. um, an episode of this when I was a kid. And I remember thinking, yeah. wow. Yeah, you know, just right. like a really cool story. Yeah. But, um, okay, so let's get into the story the, as close to the facts as we can get, okay. right? And it's called the Frisco Shootout hmm. or the Mexican War, which was what the racist cowboys called it. Yeah. Um, and it's super intertwined with legend to the point that it's like very hard to like extract those little threads of truth. Hmm. El Fago Baca himself wrote about it, but he was kind of into his own legend and uh, promoting himself uh, and also hoping to see a movie come out of the story. Wow. Well, I guess if you lived through that, you would be too, probably. Like, I gotta totally. capitalize on this. Yeah, exactly. So he was more interested in promoting the story than than in setting the record straight, right? 
building his myth. The best modern day account that I found is called El Fago Baca, Destined to Survive, hmm. by Robert Alvarado. Um, let me let me just show you. A little. I had to get past the cover. It was definitely a don't judge this book by its cover kind of moment. It has a terrible cover. So let's see if we can. Here we go. Look at this. He's destined to survive. That's bleeding cowboys font. Oh, interesting. And and there's a conquistador oh, helmet. helmet. What? Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Two hundred years overlap. Wrong. Well, three hundred years. <laughs> well, to be fair, the author does get into like the historic context of New Mexico's mm. like. Uh, demographic population and so forth, but but still, that cover is rough, man. Like that that font is the most overused font this side of Comic Sans. But it is a good book, nice, and it does cite its sources, which Excellent. is pretty rare when you're looking into the story. Where did this happen exactly? What town in New Mexico? What we call Reserve, oh. Reserve, New Mexico. Oh, you're familiar? Yes, by Daddle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. And Del- uh, Fence Lake, I think, yeah, which we've Pytown. talked about before. Pythons along the, the side. Reserve, uh, reserve had the Reserve Runners cult in the 90s, this yeah. cult that ran marathons. Remember that? Remember I, that? I remember you telling me about oh, yeah. it. <laughs> I still have some articles <laughs> saved on it. I wanted to do an episode. Yeah. Um, so that was part of Socorro County hmm. in the late 1800s. So Socorro County was a huge like slice of New Mexico at that point. I, I'm not sure. I think it's Catron County now. I'm yeah. not sure what. Yeah, but it is Catron County. It's, it's a significant different yeah. distance away from Socorro County. The only but, county in New Mexico where at one point it was legally required to have a gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, kind of recently is. Not that long ago. Yeah. Um, I know someone from Reserve, and, they, and she said they used to see those... Uh, Runner people just going by all the time. Oh, really? Yeah. But Hold I, on. That's interesting. I like that area, actually. It's a pretty area. Yeah, I love and it. if you go to uh, if you go to Reserve now, there is in fact a. Um... Hold on. There's some really cool climbing areas yeah, around there, like Devil's. Even... Oh, it weirds me out. Here, like even like or reading a description of yourself, someone else wrote. Well, that's true too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so in a, in a Reserve New Mexico, there's now an El Fago Baca statue, like mm. a monument, and it's kind of cool. Um, but uh, let's okay. So as we mentioned, as I mentioned in the last episode, El Fago came from a long-standing New Mexico family. They traced their origins in the area back to the early 1600s. Mm. A settler named Cristobal Baca. Mm. Uh, El Fago himself, though, grew up in Topeka, Kansas before his family returned to uh, New Mexico and then settled in Socorro. Hmm. And at that point, he worked as a store clerk before the trouble began. Hmm. And the trouble, as is so often the case in New Mexico, began with Texans. In the mid... So, okay, so this is... This is one of those moments where... All right, this kind of blew my mind. It's just like one of those things. Like this story, you know, you're like... Uh, the Texans came out and they were bullies or whatever, but it all comes down to a tick. Oh, really? A tick. What? I yeah. I hear this. So in the mid-1800s, the Texans were herding their cattle in huge drives to Kansas, right? Okay. Until the Longhorns in Texas started carrying a tick-borne disease oh that they were immune to, but were being communicated to the Kansas cattle. 
So Kansas in 1876 made a law that they drew a line around their state that made it illegal for Texans to bring their cattle there. So instead, the Texans started to bring their cattle to Wyoming, and in order to get there, they went west through New Mexico. And some of these Texans began settling along the trail, including a rancher named John Slaughter, who set up his cattle operation near the Hispanic town of San Francisco Plaza, which is today known as Reserve. I don't know how that change exactly uh-huh. happened. Well, St. Francis is one of the most common. Uh, I remember in Bob Julian's book, uh, Place Names in New Mexico, he says that uh, more places are named after, uh, no, more named after San Antonio, but I think St. Francis is second. It's definitely got to be close. Like yeah. there's a, a St. Yeah. Francis Street and oh, Santa so Fe much. and San Francisco, San Francisco. by Placidas. Yeah, yeah exactly. So maybe it was just a matter of convenience. But there's probably a story there that we should investigate. But what happened was when these ranchers settled near there, there was a culture ca- clash between the white Texans and the Hispanic villagers. The Texans, of course, had recently fought a rebellion against the Mexican government. And as a result, many of them harbored a racist hatred of Hispanic people. Yeah. And not only that, but the cowboys who came with the slaughter outfit were young single men who spent their free time getting drunk and rowdy which was in direct conflict with the more family-minded, we've been here for generations, villagers, right? In particular, these Texans were fond of what they called treeing a town, which basically meant heading to the local saloon, getting super drunk, doing the whole thing where they fire their gun in the air and harassing the locals. And a lot of the time, this led to fights. As uh, William French, who was a ranch hand in the San Francisco Valley, wrote, after drinking whiskey, they, quote, recollected that they were citizens of the great state of Texas and that the Alamo and other historical events were closely connected with the despised, I'm going to use the slur here, greaser. Under the influence of patriotism and whiskey, they proceeded to give vent to their feelings, their hatred of Mexicans. To them, all Mexicans were unfit associations for the white man. And this is somebody who was there. This was one of the Texans. Like, this is not like, uh, later on, we're trying to interpret what happened. This is a guy, a first-hand account. So in October of 1884, a group of these Texans who were treeing the town performed a barbaric, hateful act that set the El Fuego Baca legend into motion. They'd been drinking at a whiskey at a saloon called Milligan's. Their celebration spilled out into the street at which point a local who was known for being kind of slow, uh, he was called El Burro, he passed through the crowd, right, of these Texans. One of the cowboys lassoed him and tied him up as a steer, as a, as a joke, right? Great racist joke. Yeah. A local Spanish farmer named Epitacio, Epitacio Martinez was nearby. He intervened, running up and untying El Burro, while Deputy Pedro Saracino, who had arrived after hearing the commotion, ordered them to stop. But unfortunately, as Saracino was trying to pull out his gun from his holster, two of the cowboys managed to draw their own revolvers and aimed them at him. At this point, the cowboys were enraged. They grabbed Burro and Epitacio and pulled them into the saloon. They threw Burro on the bar And then as the man screamed, one of them pulled out a knife while another removed his pants. 
A moment later, the cowboy with the knife, whose name was Butch, short for Butcher, castrated El Burro oh just gosh, as he would a calf. monster. Yeah. Oh, a poor mentally disabled man. Like... Right. Yeah. Then they took Epitacio Martinez and they tied him up and they took pot shots at him, betting if they could hit him for a drink, right? And they wound up hitting him four times. Um, fortunately, he did survive. And by this time, Deputy Saracino had run away, uh, heading to the county seat of Socorro. When he arrived in Socorro, Saracino stopped at a store owned by his brother-in-law and complained about the situation in San Francisco. El Fago Baca, who was 19 at the time, was working as a clerk and overheard the conversation. Perhaps what happened next was due to the fact that El Fago's own brother had been lynched by a mob of Anglos in Socorro. But uh, this is what he did in, according to his own words. I told Saracino, the deputy sheriff, that he should be ashamed of himself having the law on his side and permitting the cowboys to do what they did. He told me that if I wanted to, I could take his job. I told him that if he would take me back to Frisco with him, then I would make myself a self-made deputy. We left for Frisco about two or three days after that on a buckboard with a big mule. Half of the time we had to help the mule climb every steep hill. And once in Frisco, he took me to his house, and I was expecting to run up against anything any minute. In San Francisco, Alfago Baca, who is now wearing a, ma a badge, and according to the legend, it was one that he'd bought at like a dime store. <laughs> That's funny. He began patrolling the town, in particular spending time watching the goings-on at Milligan's Saloon. On October 28, 1884, he was at Milligan's talking to a local justice of the peace, when a group of slaughters cowboys rode in looking for trouble. Elfago asked the justice of the peace why this wild behavior was tolerated. He said there were 150 of these cowboys and local law enforcement just didn't have the numbers to stop them. And at this point, while the cowboys were shouting and firing guns in front of Milligan's, Elfago Baca said what are considered his most famous words, mm. at least according to legend. I'm going to show these Texans there's at least one Mexican in the county who's not afraid of an American cowboy. Wow. Alfago then walked over to the cowboys and ordered them to stop. In answer, one of them, named Charlie McCarty, fired a shot that knocked Alfago's hat off his head. So Alfago was clearly outgunned, and he, he retreated at this point. But instead of letting the matter alone, after he left the scene, he rounded up several men to accompany him back to the saloon. By this time, Charlie McCarty had left to return to the slaughter ranch. Alfago and his posse followed him, and they caught up with him, and then wound up taking him to the local jail. But the slaughter cowboys were not going to allow this offense to stand. A number of them now rode to the jail and demanded that McCarty be released. According to Alfago, that night, 12 cowboys demanded the release of the man I had under arrest. They were armed to the teeth. I told them that instead of releasing the prisoner, I was going to give them time enough to count from one to three before I shot. They undertook to draw their weapons, and then I started. One, two, three, and I fired. When I fired, they ran. I killed one man and a horse on the run. I hung on to my supposed prisoner. The cowboys left, but their intention was to gather reinforcements of their own. One of the reinforcements was a man named James Cook who wrote about the arrival of the cowboys uh, at his ranch. 
And in this account, please note that when he speaks of Americans, what he means is, is white, right? So he writes, one evening in the fall of 1884, a rider came at a furious gate up to my ranch house door and hurriedly informed me that the Mexicans had gone on the warpath at a little settlement up the San Francisco River about 30 miles away. He stated that they had killed one of Mr. Slaughter's cowboys and they were going to try to wipe out all the Americans living near their settlement. This Mexican settlement was known as the San Francisco Plaza. The writer told me that he had been sent down to warn Americans living along the San Francisco River of the danger and to get as many men as possible to go immediately and help guard the homes of the Americans living near the Mexican settlement. Cook rode off to join the Slaughter Cowboys, fully expecting to find all of San Francisco just like embroiled in some kind of battle. But instead, he writes, instead of finding the place in flames, we found everyone asleep. We roused them up, demanding to know where the enemy was, and they said, well, they must be in bed. We got in and settled down with Mr. Bechtel, and the Alma contingent arrived, accompanied by the belated messenger. Everyone was full of zeal and whiskey, and the representative of the law, Dan, was especially ferocious. And although nobody was actually holding him back, he expressed the determination that if he was only allowed to get at them, not one would be alive on the following day. At this point, cooler heads prevailed, and two of the cowboys went to negotiate with Baca in the jail. In the end, they allowed Baca to take McCarty to the justice of the peace for a quick trial. But, they warned him, there were now 200 cowboys ready to teach Baca a lesson once the trial was over. So seeing that trouble was inevitable no matter the outcome of the trial, Elfego asked one of the posse to spread the message that all villagers should gather in the local church for safety. He then walked McCarty to the justice of the peace, delivered him for the trial, and then left the building. Outside, there were between 20 and 80, depending on the account, cowboys gathered. All of them were armed, and most of them were drunk. Baca, at this point, drew his guns and bolted through the crowd. Somehow, he managed to avoid being captured or shot and dove into an adobe shack, which was called a hakal. Oh, oh, I know about this. Okay. Hakal is a different kind of adobe. It's where they actually have wooden uh, uh, staves inside it. That makes sense because they mention a picket a few yeah. times. That there's a it's a picket house. In, in the story of Carl Taylor, Modesto Trejo's house was a hakal house oh. that had, that had uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's considered like yeah. like more temporary. J a c a l, right? So Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Huh. So he got in there. He barricaded the door because he was terrified, and he waited to see what the cowboys were going to do. One of them, a man named Jim Hearn, came to the door, called for him to come out, and then started kicking the door, shouting, apparently, come out, you dirty greaser, was what he said. Elfego answered by firing his gun twice at the door. The bullets penetrated the wood and struck him on the other side, giving him a mortal wound. The Texans, yeah. the Texans then opened fire, shooting bullet after bullet into the Hakal's adobe walls, which did little to stop them. Baca dropped to his belly, and fortunately the floor was 18 inches below the level of the ground, right? So he was able to get enough cover to survive the uh, onslaught. That might be what really helped. It did. Yeah. Once the firing stopped, a few of the cowboys who didn't realize that there was a sunken floor protecting Ofego, and they were assuming he must be dead, approached the building, but Baca aimed his gun through one of the new holes and took a shot that sent them running back to cover. 
as William French wrote. We resumed our onslaught on the cabin, searching every nook and cranny where a bullet could possibly penetrate. This had the effect of quieting him, for his demonstration ceased, but where he sought shelter from our fire and how he escaped the numerous bullets that must have passed through the building was a mystery to us. Things continued in this way, the cowboys periodically assaulting the Hakal with their guns, but to no avail, and then Baca driving off anyone who got too close with his, uh, with his gunfire. And this happened for hours until it got dark. The cowboys knew that Baca would undoubtedly kill anybody who attempted to get inside the Hakal, and their bullets weren't doing the trick. So they posted guards around the Hakal to keep them from sneaking off in the darkness, and they came up with another plan which was dynamite. Oh my gosh. At nearly midnight, one of the cowboys lit the fuse of a stick of dynamite. Baca saw the light through the holes, but he didn't realize what it was. As he told his biographer later, I saw the light, but I thought it was a cigarette butt thrown by one of the cowboys and being blown in my direction Mm -hmm. by the wind. I watched it curiously. It would be still for a moment, and then it would come on again. I thought it was funny that a cigarette should be kept that lit that long, but I didn't know of any other explanation for it. I didn't know what dynamite or a fuse was at the time. The light kept coming, and I kept watching, and the next thing I knew, kablooey. <laughs> the dynamite blew the roof in, but somehow Baca was still unharmed. It didn't leave a hole for him to escape, which he was kind of hoping for, but it miraculously created more rubble for him to hide behind. Uh-huh. The cowboys kept their distance until morning, and then... They thought he must be dead, but they were surprised to see smoke coming from the Hakal's chimney. And not only had Baca survived the blast, but he was apparently cooking tortillas for himself for breakfast. <laughs> kind of cool. <laughs> At this point, neither side had any idea of what to do. <laughs> the cowboys had tried firing gun after gun, and it hadn't done any good, and... Baca was able to kind of, it was a stalemate, right? Like he was able to keep them from getting too close, but he knew he was running out of bullets. The Cowboys made one last ditch attempt to send a man in. They gave him a suit of makeshift armor created from a wood stove. Um, Ned Kelly style. Do you know the story of Ned Kelly? Uh, Remind me. Uh, There's a movie with Heath Ledger called Ned Kelly. He's an Australian who, uh, it's a similar situation where, except he's, holed up in in the house and he puts on the suit of armor made from a wood stove and goes out and he's basically bulletproof right oh, wow. um but in this case baka managed to fire a shot into a into a chink in the uh, the cowboy's helmet hmm. and it uh, skinned a portion off his scalp and sent him running back for cover again the siege lasted another day during which time more and more Hispanic farmers and ranchers were entering the village, fully convinced that this was a battle between Spanish and Anglo that was about to erupt at any second, but all of them reticent to like engage in the, in the violence at this point. Still, back up your friend, you know? Yeah. I mean, and who knows how things might have turned out, except right around the 36-hour mark, help arrived, right? Hmm. The cowboy William French wrote, this was not a very exciting game. <laughs> And the sun was getting low, and we were all getting grumpy and drowsy when there was an unexpected diversion. This was a buggy containing three men, which drove in rapidly from the direction of Socorro. From it stepped a tall American, who said he was a deputy sheriff, and he actually possessed a badge to prove it. 
He had come into re in response to a report furnished by a Mexican who was along with him in the buggy. Our own deputy, Dan, who did not sport a badge, and if he owned one, must have left it at home, had up to this time taken no active part in the proceedings. I like how informal their law enforcement is. Nice. <laughs> Mr. Rose, who I think is the American, now took charge, and another attempt was made to communicate with Mr. Baca through the medium of the Mexican who had come in the buggy. The, uh, the quote, Mexican, was a man named Naranjo, who had accompanied Baca on the original excursion to Slaughter Ranch where he arrested McCarty. Naranjo had rushed to Socorro once the trouble started and had now come back with a lawman who was determined to end the situation peacefully. Hmm. They negotiated. Baca agreed to be placed under arrest for murder on the condition that he got to keep his guns, as he was deathly afraid that the Texans would attempt to lynch him. Um, and he was right, because as soon as he came out, many of them were calling for him to be hanged. And according to William French, William French was the guy who talked them down and said that we must allow the court's justice to prevail. And of course I fixed it. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> but he survived. Baca wound up being placed in jail for five months. And then he was transferred to Old Town Albuquerque, where he was tried for the murder of Bill Hearn. That's such nonsense. He was the one arrested and all that? Yep. These guys castrated a, an innocent... Yeah. Uh, mentally disabled man. Well, and his defense rested on the argument that he was in fear for his life when he barricaded himself in the Hakal. Reasonable. And to show the murderous intent of the group of cowboys, the uh, the defense took the door of the Hakal and presented it as evidence because it had 367 bullet holes in Amazing. it. Amazing. Good evidence. The jury found Baca not guilty. Also, wasn't the jail in Old Town like a place where you could like remove a wall if you leaned on it? Isn't it like an amazing story? Dude, and this is like the most factual version I could find. Like this was like this guy cites his sources, you know, so it's not it's not just you know, El Fago's version. This is on... this is it's got versions from the cowboys. Yeah. It's got other you know, so this is pretty close to what happened right like we can never know for sure at that point because the way you know like yeah. journalists would write about it in their own biased right. way and right. Elfago was going to try to promote his that. his vision but you know this is based on court records and stuff and so he was found not guilty and after this the atmosphere in San Francisco settled down the cowboys had learned that there were consequences oh, no. <laughs> to their actions did they learn that? Well, at least around. at least in the short term, right? <laughs> yeah. The Hispanic residents of the territory, you know, learned that they had a advocates, you know, yeah. um, and didn't have to let let them get away with the violence against their people. And they have kind of a heroic figure now, dude. Like, so center. heroic, yeah, right? That's like, amazing. Yeah. And then after a couple of years, uh, John Slaughter left his ranch and moved on. Yeah. So those, that particular group uh -huh. of cowboys left. Good. And El Fago Baca lived a long, full life. Huh. Um, as we saw in the previous episode, he was sometimes on both sides of the law. Huh. But he honestly, he seemed like he had generally pretty good morals. Right. He wound up becoming sheriff of Socorro, a lawyer in Albuquerque, and hmm. then a bounty hunter in Mexico. Oh, my gosh. In the 1890s, he started a Spanish-language newspaper, which he wrote for, and his intention was to educate New Mexico's Spanish speakers about American law before the territory became a state. Huh. 
1924, he wrote his memoirs, which were colorful. Hmm. Um, and it was from these that Walt Disney drew the inspiration for the miniseries that, unfortunately, Baca did not live to see. Hmm. He died at the age of 80 in 1945. Interesting. And the thing is, these stories about him are are really hard to verify. But there's no doubt this guy was really interesting, right? Like his life was made up of contradictions and like most historical figures, you can read his actions from a number of different perspectives. The facts don't necessarily present a consistent set of ideals from him, but he had a sense of justice and that was, that's really admirable. I like that. I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you look at this story, it's a story of, Standing up against discrimination. Right, totally. Of resisting bullies. Right. Protecting a vulnerable community right. against violent racists. Right. Frankly, I think that's something that's yeah. pretty relevant today, totally. right? You know who I should think should take up the story? Cold Case. Cold was, Case? Yeah, have you seen that show? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Mara I have not really, no. Mara watches it. Cold Cases. <laughs> How does it go? No, well, it would. It, like, I think it is an interesting story, and I'd like to know the bottom, this truth, the truth of it. Well, and I think you know, <laughs> looking back at that Disney, I didn't watch all the Disney episodes. There's right. like it's like ten hours. No, I died inside it's during the second. Really one. long. Yeah, right. um, I watched <laughs> part of the first one. Right. <laughs> but still, it's like it's 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 amazing to see a non-white hero right. kind of. Even played canonized, <laughs> even if it's Robert Loja. <laughs> Although Robert Loja saw that as like a really uh, important role he had played. Right. They asked him later on, who do you most identify with? And he said, oh, Fago Baca. Uh-huh. You know, this is a guy who had like a 50-year career playing all sorts of people, winning or uh, getting nominated for Academy Awards well. and stuff. Um, and, and so he saw that that, that is, a, is a heroic story. If you go back far enough in European history, there's a sh- shared answer. <laughs> well, any history, right? Yeah, but, wow. Wow. What a story. What a story. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, we just did this thing last week, which kind of punctures his myth a little bit, right. you know, yeah. but I'm sorry. At the end it's of this, good. it's like, dude, even at yeah. its bare bones, I'm yeah. sorry. If there were five cowboys right. shooting at him in that thing, then, uh, right. then it's still heroic, but there were enough to put 367 bullet holes. This is a matter of court right. record in that door. El Fago Paco. In the land of big men when this Thank you for tuning into another episode of City on the Edge. If you enjoyed our show, tell your friends, like and share our stuff on social media, and check out our YouTube channel by searching for City on the Edge Albuquerque. This episode has been made possible by our supporters on Patreon, aka the coolest people on the planet. To join them in their support of our show and get exclusive access to content, t-shirts, and swag, go to patreon.com slash edge and sign up for one of the tiers starting as low as $1 a month. This has been a City on the Edge production. El Fago was wise and El Fago was strong El Fago, El Gato, who made right from wrong And the legend was that, like El Gato the cat Nine lives had El Fago, Baco